Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. In preparing this episode and imagining what it must have been like for Watson and Holmes to get this opportunity to hear from Emma what had actually happened, it made me think of being in a darkroom developing pictures. There's a step in the process where you place the paper in a deep tray that's full of chemicals, and as you stand there watching, an image starts to form on the paper. It fills in and it darkens and it kind of fleshes itself out. And even though you understand that this is a chemical process, it still feels like magic. I always felt this excitement, this pleasure as I watched the image form on the paper. And when it was a special picture, when I knew it was going to be a good picture, I could tell from the negative, and I was pretty sure that it was a picture I would want to keep forever. I'd have this intense pleasure as the picture formed in front of me, and I saw how good it was. And sometimes it was so powerful that it was physical as much as it was emotional. And that's what I think when I picture Watson and Sherlock that afternoon as they listened to to Emma. It was as if they were watching a photograph, an image, only it was in the form of a narrative, Emma's narrative. And she was creating this mental image, just like I've described, and filling it in gradually as they listened. And I imagine them feeling that same sense of excitement that I've tried to describe. Although, of course, they would have also felt horrified as they listened to the account of the murders. One thing you should know is that before Emma started answering questions, Sherlock asked Mr. Morse to step out of the room. Reverend Jubb was allowed to stay because anything that Emma said in his presence would be privileged. He couldn't be required to testify or to divulge anything Emma had said because he was a minister. But that didn't apply to Mr. Morse. The only family privilege that I know of is between a husband and a wife. A spouse can't be compelled to testify against another spouse in a criminal case, but that protection doesn't extend to a niece and an uncle, or between any other combination of family members. So anticipating that Morse would be called at a later time, certainly at trial if not at grand jury, Sherlock insisted that he leave the room. He didn't want Morse, I don't think anybody present wanted Morse to be in a position where he had to choose between incriminating his nieces on the one hand and perjuring himself on the other. So as a result, he didn't hear anything substantive about Emma and Lizzie's involvement in the murders, and I think it was understood that Emma was not to give him any details in the future. The other thing I didn't mention is that very early into Emma's statement, Sherlock asked if she knew where Moriarty was, where he could be found, and she wasn't able to help him at all. It was her understanding that he moved from one place to another on a regular basis, so she didn't know. She'd never gone to a hotel or an apartment or a house or any other location where he appeared to be living at the time. And as she'd already explained, at least to her knowledge, from the time that Moriarty settled in Fall River, he had never sent Lizzie any mail. So there was nothing with a postmark on it, let alone a return address. It's possible that Lizzie had maybe on one occasion or more gone to visit Moriarty at his home, but even so, that wouldn't be of much use because he would almost certainly have moved long since. Lizzie confirmed to Emma that she had never disclosed this relationship with Davidson to her father or her stepmother prior to the murders, and there were at least two reasons why. The first was that she met Davidson under circumstances that were not or wouldn't have been considered to be appropriate. She hadn't been formally introduced to Moriarty through one of the ship's officers, and her chaperone on that trip 
was certainly unaware of this developing relationship. The chaperone was a former high school teacher from Fall River. And if Lizzie had told her father and stepmother that she had met Moriarty or Davidson aboard the ship, there was a chance that her parents would find out from the chaperone or for somebody else in town that this connection between Lizzie and Moriarty had not been initiated in a socially acceptable way. In other words, Lizzie was afraid from the start that her parents would disapprove for that reason alone. I've already explained that Lizzie and Emma didn't trust their stepmother, and they felt that she was always looking for ways to drive a wedge between them and their father. Although Mr. Borden didn't have an active social life, he definitely cared about his reputation, and it would have been humiliating to learn that his favorite daughter had been carrying on an affair as soon as she got out of his sight. And he would have found it particularly galling that she was doing this while he was giving her a treat. She was doing this on his dime. She was sent away to have a good time, but not to be naughty or disobedient or to behave in some shameful fashion. So it would have been even more infuriating to him. And there was another concern, which was that even though Moriarty had been trained as a doctor, he hadn't worked as a doctor or any other way for that matter ever since he'd been fired by Cunard in the summer of 1890. Moriarty hadn't been able to get work on another ship, or at least that's what he claimed. Now, in theory, he could have set up a practice when he moved to southeastern Massachusetts, but what he told Lizzie was that he needed to keep a low profile because this English detective, this unnamed detective, was pursuing him. And Moriarty said, I can't risk exposing myself in the community. If I started a practice, I would have to get my name out there, and that would make it easier for this horrible detective to track me down. So, even if Lizzie had somehow managed to overcome the first obstacle, if she'd been able to convince her father and her stepmother that her introduction to Moriarty and her subsequent relationship with him had been appropriate, and that was not likely, I think it would have been very hard to do that, even if she'd been successful, the issue of employment and Moriarty's lack of income would have almost certainly been fatal. In other words, Mr. Borden would never have approved of a marriage to somebody who had no visible means of support, and neither Lizzie nor Moriarty would have been able to give Mr. Borden a satisfactory explanation as to why he hadn't been working. So having given you that background, let's get back to Emma's narrative, and I'm going to use Watson's notes just like I did in the last episode. We'll start with the daytime burglary at the Borden home that occurred in the summer of 1891. What, if anything, did Davidson have to do with that incident? Apparently, it was his idea. Lizzie had told him that her father kept a lot of his business records in his bedroom at home, and she and Davidson were determined to find out what he was worth. They were already talking about how they might get their hands on his fortune, and they wanted to have a good idea as to how much was there. Davidson had done some research at the Bristol County Registry of Deeds, and he'd compiled a list of Mr. Borden's real estate holding. And so this not only told him what Mr. Borden owned, but it gave him a pretty good sense of what he was worth, at least as far as his real estate holdings were concerned. And it also confirmed that Mr. Borden had no debt. There were no mortgages. There were no tax liens. So they were able to come up with a pretty accurate estimate as to the value of his real estate. Lizzie told Davidson that her father had a number of bank accounts, and he also had investments in various businesses, city businesses, stock in some of these corporations, the textile mills, one of the local streetcar companies. 
She'd been in his bedroom occasionally. She had to go through sometimes to get linen because the sheets and the towels were kept in a closet or a dressing room off Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom. And on a few occasions, she'd had the opportunity to poke around on Mr. Borden's desk and see what there was. So she knew there were some financial records. Emma's understanding is that this was the primary motive for the daytime burglary in the summer of 1891. At least, that's what Lizzie told her. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were away at the time. They were at their farm in Swansea. And Lizzie purposely chose a day when she, Emma, and Bridget would all be at home because she didn't want to be the only one there. She wanted some of the suspicion to be, in theory, spread out and divided among the three of them. And she was pretty confident that at some point, Bridget would go upstairs to take a rest, which was her habit. That's what she did on August 4th. After she had done her chores, finished washing the windows, you remember, she went up to lie down for a while. And Lizzie raised the alarm 10 minutes later and brought her back, brought her downstairs. But on this particular day, that's what she did. She went up in the late morning. And as soon as that happened, Lizzie brought Moriarty into the house because he'd been waiting in the barn for her signal. And all he had to do was cross the driveway and go in through the side door. So this was actually the day that Emma first met him. I keep switching back and forth between Moriarty and Davidson. It doesn't really matter. Lizzie brought Emma in. She'd been in the sitting room and Moriarty was standing there just inside the kitchen. What did he look like? What did she think of him? Well, he definitely made an impression. He dressed well, but what really struck her was that he had this command presence. He had a sense of power that he projected. There was a forcefulness about him that she found hard to put into words. She said, it's possible that I'm telling you this and that I developed this impression myself because I knew how strongly my sister felt about him. And knowing that, it may have colored my own impression. Even though Bridget was resting at the time and she was up in her bedroom on the third floor, Emma said they all lowered their voices to make sure that they wouldn't be overheard. And she said, in addition to what I've already told you about him, about his physical appearance, He had this ability to give me the sense that I was the most important person in the world. When he looks at you and focuses on you, and I assume he does this with everybody, it's really intense. You get this feeling that nothing in the world would break through, that all he wants to do is talk to you and hear from you and have this one-on-one contact with you. It's like nothing else is on his mind. It's a remarkable feeling, and he's able to do it in a way that felt genuine. Did this make me uncomfortable? No, it wasn't that type of attention. It didn't feel inappropriate. I'm not saying that it was genuine. It may have been completely insincere, but it didn't feel insincere. It was disarming and flattering. So it was evident to me within five minutes how hard it would be to resist his attentions. But to get back to the details of that day... After we spoke to him briefly, Lizzie asked me to wait by the back door while she and Moriarty went upstairs and entered our parents' bedroom. I can't remember whether Lizzie had already told me why they were doing this, but I learned at some point that the primary reason was so that Moriarty could get a look at my father's business records. You've asked me what I knew about their plans, their long-term plans. At that time, I don't remember hearing anything specific from Lizzie. Obviously, from what you know already... Lizzie and I were anxious about my father's estate, and we felt that we'd been kept in the dark in so many different ways. We really wanted to know what he had. We wanted to know everything, every aspect of his finances, and we knew he wasn't going to share that with us. 
So in that sense, I was in favor of this plan to search his records and get a clear picture of what he did have. I don't know how they got into the bedroom. I assume that Davidson picked the lock because I know it was my father's habit and also my stepmother's to lock the door when they were out of the house. And as for the theft, the money and the jewelry, as I understand it, that was Moriarty. He found quite a bit of cash and he took it. In addition, he left with my stepmother's jewelry. That may have been at Lizzie's urging because she knew that it would really upset my stepmother. I can't tell you whether Davidson had intended from the start to steal whatever he could find. I didn't even know he had taken anything until my father reported that there'd been a theft, and I wasn't happy about it because this alerted my father and my stepmother that someone had been in their room, and that in turn caused them to suspect all of us, but primarily Lizzie, and it really seemed like an unnecessary provocation. Because we were already concerned about my stepmother's influence on my father, and we were sure that this would not help us. She would use it against us. Even if she couldn't prove that Lizzie was involved, she would hint at it and insinuate and use it to turn him against us. And yes, as you suggest, I think this burglary and the way my father reacted to it did probably delay the murders. My father's reaction was unexpected, and I think that as a result, Lizzie was caught off guard and she felt constrained for a while. She never told me explicitly that Moriarty had been urging her to commit murder, but I could see over time that something was burdening her. She was holding some secret, and I suspect that during that time, he was cultivating this idea. He was suggesting it and urging her, maybe in a roundabout way, but as time went on, I think it began to wear on her. Was Lizzie still providing Moriarty with financial support after he moved here? I'm sure she was. I know she was. I told you he didn't have any other form of income, at least none that I was aware of. But I do know that Lizzie would periodically withdraw cash from her bank and give it to him. Father had also given us a few shares in one of the local mills, and we sold them, actually at a loss, because Moriarty needed the money. And then Lizzie would sometimes borrow money from me. I know you know about this incident five years ago, where father was persuaded to purchase a one-half interest in a house at my stepmother's request. We've admitted that when we learned about this, we approached our father and we insisted that he give us the same or better. That's when he deeded over our grandfather's house. This house had two apartments and we did get a small monthly income, rental income, but that wasn't enough to satisfy Moriarty. So in June of this year, just three months ago, Lizzie and I asked Father to purchase the house from us and give us cash, and he agreed to do that, and we both received $2,500. And I know that Lizzie was prepared, maybe even expected, to turn this money over to Moriarty, and I thought or expected that she would come to me at some point and ask that I help her do this. What can I tell you about the murders? Well, as you know, I was visiting friends in Fairhaven at the time, and I'd been away from the house for two weeks prior to the murders. I had nothing to do with the planning. I had no idea that this was going to happen. Am I aware of any particular event that precipitated these murders? Were they carefully planned or spontaneous? I can't answer that definitely, but I have some idea as to how it all came about. As you know, when I started my visit in Fairhaven around July 20, Lizzie accompanied me as far as New Bedford, where she spent three days with other friends. I know that she was planning to see Davidson or Moriarty during that time. I don't know whether he was living in New Bedford, but he may have been. And these friends who were hosting Lizzie 
were closer in age to my father and stepmother than they were to Lizzie, so she had a good deal of freedom. She was able to leave the house on her own for hours at a time without raising any suspicions. I think she told the hosts, our family friends, that she had shopping to do. That was often the excuse. She was looking for a dress or a dress pattern. I think that's what she told them. At the time we left our house to go on these visits, we had no idea at that time that anything was wrong, that either father or our stepmother had discovered or suspected that Lizzie was attached to Moriarty. But in fact, it turns out that Mrs. Borden had already developed some suspicion that she was up to something. I don't know why or how she got this into her head. It's not surprising that neither Lizzie nor I knew that she was suspicious because our stepmother was by nature insincere and conniving. It wasn't something she would come to us and talk about in a genuine way. She would think about how she could use it against us. She had a real talent for concealing her true feelings. For some time leading up to these murders, it had become apparent to me and Lizzie that our stepmother had turned against us. My father was getting older and he had a lot of money and he was secretive about his plans. So I'm sure that Mrs. Borden was curious and maybe worried about her future, just like we were about ours. You may have heard the rumor that Lizzie met with a lawyer in Providence about a week before the murders to ask him about probate law. I don't know how that information got out, but it's true. Lizzie wrote me the night she came back or maybe the next morning and told me what she'd learned, and she was clearly upset about it, and she was worried, and so was I. I don't know whether Moriarty had encouraged her to go and meet with this guy, but he knew that she would. She told him that she was going to see him, and I know that she told him what she had learned as soon as she could. It appeared that Father was making an inventory of all his assets, maybe in anticipation of executing a will, but that wasn't the precipitating factor for the murders. Instead, as you've suggested, what prompted Lizzie and Moriarty to act was the knowledge that they'd been discovered. When Lizzie came back from New Bedford, about 10 days before the murders, something was different. It was absolutely unmistakable. Both my father and Mrs. Borden were behaving differently. Father wouldn't meet her eyes. He seemed to avoid her, while Mrs. Borden was acting smug, almost triumphant, whenever they crossed paths. It was clear to Lizzie that they'd discovered something, and she suspected correctly that it had to do with Moriarty. At first, she thought that someone may have seen them together when she was in New Bedford, but when she thought back on it and replayed it in her mind, she couldn't think of any way that somebody could have discovered them because they'd been really careful as to how they met and where they met. So then it occurred to her that somebody, almost certainly Mrs. Borden, had gone into her bedroom while Lizzie was away and had searched it. And Lizzie, of course, had kept all of Moriarty's notes and letters. Even though she had hidden them, if somebody was looking for them, that person could find them. And that's what happened. So suspecting that someone had been in her room and gone through her letters, Lizzie went to her hiding place. She quickly determined that someone had gone through them. She didn't say anything to me about any missing letters. I don't think Mrs. Borden took any of the letters and turned them over to Mr. Borden. There was something about the way she'd replaced them, the way they were organized or left, that tipped Lizzie off, that made her realize that someone had been in there looking at them. What was that little parcel that Mr. Borden, my father, was carrying back? Yes, it did have to do with the murders in a way. It's connected, and I'll explain that when the time comes. It's not part of the narrative right now, but we'll get to it. At any rate, after Lizzie found out that someone had been through her letters, she wrote me in a panic and asked what I, sh what I thought she should do. 
And then she told me that when I wrote back, I should put something on the envelope directing the post office to hold the letter until she called for it. And that would prevent Father and Mrs. Borden from intercepting the letter. And I know that she contacted Moriarty in the usual way by leaving him a note, and she told him about what had happened. Did Moriarty tell her to say that she'd been involved with a married man and that she'd broken up with him and would never see him again? No, that's not what he did. In fact, he urged her to arrange a meeting with Father and with Mrs. Borden as soon as possible, and he planned to attend. He said to Lizzie, we should acknowledge that we've been together, we shouldn't deny anything, and we should ask for their forgiveness and tell them that we're planning to get married. We'll explain to them that we're in love and that we had been planning to get married as soon as possible. And then Moriarty would come up with some excuse as to why he hadn't been working. He would promise to start soon. He'd have some proposal or plan about his future employment. And based on my interactions with him, I know that Moriarty can be extremely charming and persuasive. He and Lizzie were really hopeful that this would be sufficient to win my father over. Obviously, her greatest fear was that father would disown her on the spot. They knew this was a long shot, but they didn't see any other alternative. This seemed to be the best option. These plans were all made quickly, a day or two before the murders. Then Lizzie had a quick conversation with father to set up the meeting, and she said he was very cold and distant, but she begged for an opportunity to explain what had happened, and he agreed. She didn't tell him that Moriarty would be there because she was afraid, and it turns out correctly, that he would have refused to meet under those circumstances. They chose Thursday afternoon, the day of the murders, to have this meeting, and although these arrangements were made between Lizzie and my father, Mrs. Borden would obviously be there. And in addition, father said he would have Mrs. Borden make some arrangements so that Bridget would be out of the home and wouldn't be there to overhear them when they talked about all this. Now, Lizzie and I had been writing to each other every day during this time in the lead up to August 4. And in one of my letters, I told her that I had been in touch with Uncle John and that he was planning to visit probably on Wednesday, August 3rd. He might stay that night, but if he did, he wouldn't go beyond that. He'd be going home sometime the following day, August 4th. So Lizzie had this information in advance of the murders. And you asked about Bridget's schedule and what she would usually do on Thursdays. Yes, she often washed windows on Thursdays because the other days of the week were dedicated to specific tasks. So that was the day when Mrs. Borden would usually have her do the windows. Did Lizzie ever learn how Mrs. Borden came to suspect that she was involved with someone? She did. She learned, in fact, on the morning of the murders directly from Mrs. Borden. And I'll get to that in a minute. So I'll stop here. We'll pick up with this in the next episode. And we'll get through the murders and maybe into some of the aftermath. I hope you join me. I look forward to it. And until then, take care.